Welcome to the holiday edition of Fair Territory. And we've got a special show for this week. We're not going to talk about the offseason. We're going to take a break from the offseason. In part because I'm taping this on Friday. We don't want to get the show dated by next week. Okay. But there are other reasons why I want to do the show a little bit differently this week. And it involves celebrating the 2023 season. We're always so caught up in the nitty-gritty and all the details of what's going on. We sometimes forget to kind of bask in what has happened in a good way in baseball in 2023. So I'm going to go through my five favorite things of the 2023 season. This is the non-Shohei Otani division. I believe he's kind of all of our favorites, and we'll get to him later. But these are the five things that kind of stood out to me this year more than anything. And we'll start with number five. Some would have this at number one, and I can understand that, but it's the pitch clock. The pitch clock that made our game watchable again. For so many years, it had been dragging and taking forever, and a lot of people were just getting bored and kind of wondering if baseball was ever going to snap out of it. Well, let's take a look at some numbers from the past season, and it'll show you just how dramatically the clock impacted the game, and not just the time of game, which of course is the big thing, but also the pace of the game. All right, you see it here. The average time of a nine-inning major league game dropped to two hours, 40 minutes in the first year of the pitch clock. That was a 24-minute decrease, putting the average time of game at its lowest since 1985. That alone was cause for celebration among a lot of people. But again, it was more than that. It was the pace. It was the ability to watch games again flow. And that hadn't been the case in many years. And I have a friend who used to be a baseball writer and now is doing some other things in journalism. And he said this year, for the first time in a long time, he actually enjoyed watching baseball again. A lot of people seem to feel the same way. And to show you vividly just what a decline in the time of game it was, take a look at this. Essentially, we're going from 3 hours 4 minutes in 2022 to two hours, 40 minutes in 2023. And on this graph, it basically looks like the time of game is falling off a cliff. It did. Thank goodness there were some more adjustments being made for 2024, but I expect that the pace is going to continue to be good and the times of games will continue to be good as well. Pitch clock number five on my list of favorite things. Number four, this is a guy who was the MVP of the National League this year, and he did some remarkable things. I'm talking, of course, about Ronald Acuna Jr. What an amazing season he had. We can go through the numbers, and we will right here. Just showing you what Acuna did. It's worth repeating again who this guy was for the Atlanta Braves last season. Batting average, 337. On base, 416. Slug, 596. And, of course, 73 stolen bases to lead the majors. You might say, yeah, the rules helped juice that total. Maybe so, but he led the majors by a pretty good margin. Also led the majors in runs, hits, and on-base percentage. Now, what I liked about Acuna beyond what he did on the field was the things I heard from Braves people about how he was off the field. And the year before, when he was still coming off his injury, it was his first full season since, he still wasn't right. He still wasn't right physically, and it seems that he wasn't right mentally. He was a little bit down because he couldn't be himself. This year, he was, of course, back to Ronald Acuna Jr., and you didn't hear anymore that, ah, he's a little bit of a problem, he's this, he's down, he's sulking. No, 
You heard he was a good teammate. You heard he was doing great things. He played in 159 games, like all the Braves. He seems to want to play every day. So Acuna, he could easily be a dude of the year candidate. But, of course, he's the National League MVP, and he's good enough for number four on my list of favorite things. Just the way he came out of it, both on the field and, I guess, off the field, you would say as well, lifting his own spirits with his play and getting back to who he was and who he could be. Number three on this list, well, this is an interesting one. It's kind of one that's closer to my heart because I worked in Baltimore for so many years, and it's the Orioles' resurgence. Now, granted, the Orioles tanked, and they tanked in a big way. And really, after a while, they had nowhere to go but up. But in the last two years, they've gone up in a big way. And what's most heartwarming about all this, I don't root for any one team, but obviously I have a lot of affection for Baltimore, having worked there for so many years. I was there from 1987 to 2009 in one capacity or another. I lived there. My family basically was started there. So Baltimore was always, in my mind, a baseball town that was kind of the equivalent of St. Louis. It was the East Coast St. Louis. And when I say that, I'm talking about the passion of the fans, the loyalty, really the upbeat nature as well. And when you look at their records year by year, the last five years, you can see how far they've come. This team under Brandon Hyde and Mike Elias, they've done some great things. Now, 18, 19, and 21. I'm not including 2020 here. It was a shortened season. Those were horrible years. Horrible. And listen, none of us is a fan of tanking. That's what the Orioles did. They were upfront about it. They were not hiding anything. They just went all the way back and then made some great moves, and most of them not that big. A lot of waiver claims, minor league free agents, all kinds of things along those lines. 2022 was a step forward, 83 and 79, and then 23... This year, the 101 wins, one of their best seasons in a long time. And, of course, they got upset in the playoffs by the Rangers. Actually, it might not have been an upset considering the Rangers went on to win the World Series. But that was a disappointing end for them, getting swept like that in the Division Series. No matter. Adley Rushman, Gunnar Henderson, Santander, all of the guys they have and all of the players who are coming make them a team to watch, not, of course, just in 2024, but in all the years to come. Great job by the Orioles. Good to see Baltimore alive again. My number two story or favorite thing, well, this one is similar to the Orioles, but their great accomplishments happen more in the postseason than the regular season. During the regular season, the Diamondbacks were only 84 and 78. No one really took them all that seriously going into the playoffs, but I remember Jason Stark of The Athletic telling me, I sort of like them to upset the Brewers. I thought Jason was nuts, but if you remember, the Brewers lost Woodruff right around that time. It seemed to just deflate them, and credit to the Diamondbacks, they took full advantage. So let's go through the Diamondbacks' postseason run, because it was genuinely remarkable. I loved what they did. It was so cool to watch. The wildcard series, the two-game sweep of the Brewers. The division series, this was the shocker. The three-game sweep of the Dodgers, another great Dodgers team, goes down in October. Then the NLCS, the seven-game win over the Phillies. And it wasn't just your basic run-of-the-mill seven-game triumph. The Diamondbacks were down 2-0 in this series. Then they were down 3-2 in this series, going back to Philadelphia, and they won the series. Now, granted, in the World Series, it all kind of faded on them. And when I finally picked them up, I was with the American League, with Fox, until the World Series. 
I looked at that middle of the order, Gabriel Moreno, Christian Walker, Tommy Pham, and I thought, those are good players. That's not a World Series triumph middle of the order. And it turned out that it wasn't a World Series triumph middle of the order, but credit to the Diamondbacks. They did some amazing things this year. They've had a good offseason going forward, re-signing Gurriel, signing Eduardo Rodriguez. They're going to be a team to watch. I know they're not the Dodgers. They're not spending a billion dollars, but they're going to be quite competitive with some good young players to come. And now my number one favorite thing from this year, and this might surprise people because it really had nothing to do with the regular season or the postseason. My number one favorite thing was the World Baseball Classic, which I had the privilege of covering for Fox and The Athletic. I said this at the time, and I'll say it again. That period in March, it was about two weeks or so, when the WBC was going on and I was at games every night, that was about the most fun I have ever had covering baseball. I can only compare it to the 1991 World Series, which I remember vividly. Minnesota Twins, Atlanta Braves. That was a closely fought World Series, went seven games. And I remember the feeling of, I couldn't wait to get to the ballpark every day. That's how it was with the WBC. And I can run through all the games and tell you all about all the great things that happened from Great Britain's run. Well, it wasn't really a run, but the shocking upset of Colombia. Then, of course, Puerto Rico's victory over the Dominican Republic the day Edwin Diaz suffered a most unfortunate injury. And then right up to the finals, we had some amazing games in the quarters and semis. And then the ultimate conclusion with Otani striking out Trout for Team Japan and Team Japan winning the title. It was a blast every night. There was no pitch clock. The games took uh, however long they took, but it was just a lot of fun. So the WBC was my number one favorite thing of 2023. I imagine some of you might say, Ken, you're crazy. There were so many better things that happened. But no, this is my show. That's my number one favorite. Time now for the Inside Dish. This is the part of the show where I talk about maybe a story I've written, something going on in the game. And this week, we've got a special Inside Dish because I'm going to talk about the Hall of Fame vote. Our ballots are due December 31st, so it's coming up. I'm not going to reveal my vote just yet, but I'm just going to take you through the ballot take you through a bit of my thought process, and also give you some insight into what I believe will be at least my toughest decisions this year. Now, let's start this segment with going back to my ballot from last year, from 2023. Of course, Scott Rowland was the big one. He was elected. I voted for him. Voted for Todd Helton and Billy Wagner. Both of those guys are really close, and I would be surprised if they did not get in this year. Andrew Jones also making a strong run. Gary Sheffield, in pretty good position as well. The problem for him now is that this is his last year on the ballot. And then Jeff Kent, who I voted for pretty consistently, he falls off the ballot after his 10th year, only got to 46.5% of the ballot last year. This year, obviously, Roland is no longer there. Kent is no longer there. But we do have some really interesting newcomers. And I want to talk about them a little bit as we get into this. Adrian Beltre is the numero uno newcomer, and he is a guy that I feel really certain will get huge support and be a likely first ballot Hall of Famer, and he should be. All the numbers are there. He is a third baseman that is an underrepresented position in the Hall. Sterling character. No one ever said a bad word about Adrian Beltre. He was valued as a teammate. So he's a guy, you can look at the Fangraphs version of War. I don't take War completely as 
a guide for the Hall of Fame. But my goodness, he is way up there. Also, newcomers that are of great note, Chase Utley from the Phillies. You see his war inflated by his base running and by his defense. Joe Maurer and David Wright. Now, the problem for Utley, as we discuss this, and we'll get into it, he is under 2,000 hits for his career. Since the expansion era began, 1960, no player with fewer than 2,000 hits, no position player, has been elected to the Hall by either the baseball writers or one of the small committees. So that's an uphill fight for him. Mara got to 2,000 hits late in his career, so he doesn't have that black mark against him. And I'm not sure it's a black mark against Chase Utley, but that is going to be an issue for him with at least some voters. Now, as we get into this thing, let's talk about what I believe will be some of my toughest decisions. One of them is going to be Chase Utley, and it's actually going to be a combination of Chase Utley and Jimmy Rollins. They are quite different as candidates. Jimmy Rollins has more of the counting stat case. He's got almost 2,500 hits. He's got an MVP. He played a long time, played for the Phillies, and was their shortstop and leader. Chase Utley, a shorter peak, but what a peak. And granted, he doesn't have the volume that Rollins has. They're very different as candidates. But he is someone who excelled at every aspect of the game. He was a student of the game, as savvy as they come on a baseball field, and someone who really was a role model for a lot of players during the era in which he played. So my question with Rollins and Utley is that, for me, it's very difficult to separate them on a ballot. I'm not sure either is totally deserving, at least for me right now. Rollins, his offensive career numbers, his OPS plus is below league average in an era that was an offensive era for shortstops. And Utley, I mentioned the volume issue. And I do find it difficult to separate them when I think back to Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker. Now, Lou Whitaker fell off the ballot the first year. He should be a Hall of Famer. He has Hall of Fame numbers. He was a victim of the crowded ballot at the time. Alan Trammell is in the Hall of Fame. Now, they were different players, too. I don't know if they were quite as different as Utley and Rollins. But to me, it's almost a package deal. And I know people will say, that's ridiculous, Ken. Come on, man. This guy's this. This guy's that. I get it. But they both were impact players for a team that dominated the late 2000s, early 2010s. So that's going to be one really difficult decision for me. Another one, Carlos Beltran. I wrote about him last year, his first year on the ballot, and I did not vote for him. I outlined my reasons. There are a lot of pros for him. Basically, he is a Hall of Famer if you ignore the sign-stealing scandal. And last year, I just found it really difficult to do that. I just felt you don't elect a guy in his first year after what just happened. Even though it was really so late in his career and a blip in an otherwise exemplary resume. So Carlos Beltran remains a guy that I'm thinking about and not so sure about. I said this last year and I'll say it again. Just because I vote one way one year doesn't mean I'm closed-minded for the rest of this guy's term or 10 years that he will be eligible for the Hall. I review this every season. I give additional thought to it. And one of the issues with Beltran for me in a positive way is actually I believe the Astros players have been punished enough. I know a lot of fans do not agree with that, and they say that's ridiculous. They were never punished by Major League Baseball. 
But if you look at public perception, if you look at the way the players have been treated, the ones who continued on in the game, and Beltran lost his job managing with the Mets, really hasn't recovered in the game of baseball, I would suggest that they have been punished enough in a different kind of way than Rob Manfred could have done as commissioner. So that's another tough one for me. And then Torrey Hunter. Now, Torrey Hunter, in my view, does not have Hall of Fame numbers. A lot of gold gloves, no question about it. Pretty good counting numbers, no question about that either. But he's a little bit short for me. The problem with excluding Torrey Hunter is that he is a center fielder, a position that, again, is underrepresented. Andrew Jones should be in. Jim Edmonds should have gotten a longer look. He was another victim of the crowded ballot. Torrey, I don't believe, is at the level of either of those guys, but he is a guy who had a tremendous career and certainly is worthy of being on the ballot. I don't know that I would vote for him this year, but I would like to see some more center field representation. And if you want to throw Bernie Williams into that mix as well, another guy who fell off the ballot, he deserved a longer look. So when I put all this together, I just continue thinking about it, especially at this time of year and actually at all times of every year. This is a constant discussion that I have with other baseball writers, with people in the game. In fact, I've called a number of people in the game this week. Managers, former players, people who knew these candidates best, and asked their opinions. Because I'm just gathering information, trying to come to my own opinion as best as I can. It is not a perfect process. We all know that. And we all know fans have strong opinions on the Hall of Fame ballot, as they should. It's part of what makes the discussion so great. My view is all opinions are pretty much valid. However you feel about your ballot or fan feeling about players, that is perfectly fair game as long as you can justify it. And the problem with justifying a ballot every single year is you can blow holes through virtually any argument. And this was especially true of the steroid era guys and remains true of those players, but it's also true of others. If you say, well, I like this candidate for this, this, and this reason, you can say, well, what about this, this, and this? Again, that is part of what makes our game so great. I will be revealing my full ballot at a later date. We'll talk about it again. But right now, those are my thoughts. All right, since this is the year-end show, we are not going to do Dude and Dork of the Week. We are going to do Dude and Dork of the Year, the entire calendar year, 2023. The Dude should be fairly obvious. He is kind of the Taylor Swift of baseball. And I'm talking about Shohei Otani. I'm not trying to offend any of the Swifties out there. Shohei Otani's not Taylor Swift. But in baseball, he is as big a deal as it gets. His year started with what I referred to earlier, his amazing performance in the WBC capped off by a strikeout of Mike Trout in relief for the final out for Team Japan. He then had his brilliant two-way season once more, and actually, it would have been even better had he not suffered an injury that required surgery. Regardless, he was still American League MVP. And then to cap it all off, he signs the richest deal in baseball history, $700 million. If you account for the deferrals, it drops to about $460 million, $420 million, $300 however you want to use your interest rates. It's still a great deal. It might not be what some people thought he would get in terms of pure present day value, but you can even say Shohei is a dude for what he did with the structure of the contract, deferring 68 of the $70 million per season. So he could help his team become even stronger. 
we saw this right away with the signing of Yoshinobu Yamamoto. So Shohei Otani, dude of the year, pretty obvious choice. The dork of the year, also an obvious choice. Now, this cat was dork of the week quite a few times. I kind of lost count after a while. But John Fisher, the owner of the Las Vegas A's, or whatever they're going to be called, he is the dork of the year. And he's the dork of the year for his systematic takedown of that franchise that led to the inevitable decision to depart. And actually, it might not have been inevitable. If you listen to people in the Oakland city government, he simply wanted to leave. Now, obviously, owners do these things. They do things that make us crazy from time to time. But this, to me, was worse. There was a proud history of the A's in Oakland. They had accomplished a lot. They had done some great things. They had become part of the fabric of the community. Now, you might say, well, look at the way they were drawing. They deserve to leave. They should leave. But the way they were drawing was a reflection of the amount of money Fisher was investing in the team, the way the team was torn apart every time it seemed that they were on the verge of something special. If you go back and look at some of the teams, 2019 in that range, Olsen, Chapman, Simeon, you can name a number of great players who got great contracts later. They were all part of the Oakland A's. But John Fisher, well, he's going to Vegas. And here's the other part of the reason he's dork of the year. I am not convinced, nor are a lot of people convinced, that Las Vegas is going to be some kind of salvation for the A's. In fact, there are a lot of questions about whether this team will succeed in Las Vegas. And there are questions about whether, even if this team does succeed, will Fisher then invest in the club? Or will he continue to carry low payrolls? John Fisher, dork of the year for a variety of reasons. We saw the fan protest this year. They were quite a reflection of the passion of that community. And it's a shame what happened, period. And in my opinion, it could have been avoided had different decisions been made over the course of, I don't know, the past decade or so. This team should be in the Bay Area. It should not be in Las Vegas. Time now for Grilling Ken. Let's get to your questions. First, we hear from Rick Doherty from Tall Guy Talks Travel. Well, this is small guy talking baseball. He asks, does the silence around Snell indicate that he isn't as sought after as we thought? It seems like a lot of Yamamoto teams aren't necessarily into Snell as a second option. Good question, Rick. And one thing I always kind of warn fans about is not to take excessive talk in the media or minimal talk in the media about a free agent too seriously. We rarely know exactly what is going on behind the scenes. In fact, we never know exactly what is going on behind the scenes. And for those who pretend otherwise, they're kidding themselves. I always think as much information as we try to get, we're getting like 10%, whatever the percentage might be. So with regard to your question on Snell, he definitely has not been a front burner issue for most clubs because those clubs you just mentioned, they've been focused on Yamamoto. But I expect now we will start to hear more about Snell. He is a two-time Cy Young winner, for goodness sake. I know he has flaws, the walks, the lack of bulk innings, etc. But he is someone who is extremely talented. He's going to do well in free agency. As I wrote last week, it's Scott Boris' season. His guys are the big guys left. And I expect Snell to command not necessarily a Yamamoto-type contract, but a good one. Next question comes from Drew Box. Drew asks... Will the White Sox ever make being a fan of their team fun again? 2021 feels like decades ago. Drew, you're absolutely right about that. 
It's only been two years. My goodness. And they have fallen apart. Of course, they replaced their entire front office, Ken Williams, Rick Hahn, hired Chris Getz as their new general manager. And really, his first test will be the Dylan Cease situation. Dylan Cease, two years of control remaining in high demand. The White Sox have been waiting for Yamamoto to sign, for the decks to clear, so they could trade Cease and hopefully, in their minds, get a really good return for him. They're trying to change their culture, and we're going to see that in some of their player moves. We're going to see it perhaps in the way Pedro Grafal handles the team in his second season. They've got a long way to go. Now, Tim Anderson is gone now. There's going to be some more turnover, but I do expect Getz at some point in a weak division to, as you put it, make this team more fun again. Next question from Kyle Welch. Kyle asks, are the Guardians considering moving Bieber? Would they be interested in an expanded deal with other players as well? Yes, the Guardians are considering moving Shane Bieber, 2020 American League Cy Young winner. I don't know that it's going to happen. And the reason is that Bieber has lost velocity since 2020, really almost every year. He's not quite the same guy. He's coming off an injury, came back at the end of the season, but that was it. So as one executive put it to me, I'm not sure anyone is really going to be that interested in Shane Bieber at the price that the Guardians likely would request. Understandable. Now, if you package him with, let's say, Emmanuel Classe, who has been another player that they've been discussing, then you get into a more interesting conversation, and perhaps that is the way this will go. But Bieber alone, he's not Burns, Corbin Burns. He's not Dylan Cease in terms of the quality of pitcher right now. Only one year of control left as well. So I'm not sure if they will trade him this offseason when they can keep him and hope that he kind of gets back to more of who he was and then they can move him at the deadline. And finally, our last question comes from Jay's Guru, who asks, why are you so biased against Canada? Now, basically, fans of all 30 teams could ask me the same question. Why am I so biased against their team? Some have more of a beef with me than others. But this particular question, I know where it comes from. It comes from the column I wrote after Shohei Otani signed with the Dodgers, choosing the Dodgers over the Blue Jays. I wrote that it was good for the sport. It was good that he was in L.A., that if he had gone to Toronto, it wouldn't have been the same impact for Major League Baseball. Now, I don't know how you can really interpret that as me being biased against Canada, but if you want to, be my guest. You guys have your opinions. You're entitled to all of your opinions. I happen to love Canada. I love going to Canada. I have covered Grey Cups in Canada. The Baltimore Stallions in the 1990s, they won a Grey Cup. And I was there in, I believe it was Winnipeg. It might have been Regina. So I've been to Canada. I love Canada. I know Canada. I'm not biased against Canada. I was just writing my opinion that day. Thanks for all of your questions, including the one from Jay's Guru. Hey, thanks for listening all year long. Thanks for watching. You know where to find us. You have found us, and I'm really appreciative. Apple, Spotify, YouTube, like, subscribe, do whatever you want to do. We'll be back in 2024, and we'll do it again. Hey, get in on the action with the FT fam at BetMGM. New customers use the bonus code FOUL, F-O-U-L, for a $1,500 first bet offer. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit at least $10 into your BetMGM Sportsbook account. Place your first wager and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if the bet loses. If that bet does lose, your bonus bets will be available once your initial wager is settled. 
Gambling problem or concern? Call 1-800-GAMBLER.